Well, good morning. As you can uh, probably tell from the bulletin, today we're starting a new sermon series entitled, How Does God Feel About Us? It's a series in which uh, we'll run for about seven weeks, for seven weeks, and it'll coincide with our, our fall life group challenge. And during the course of the series, we'll be addressing the essential issue of what is God's basic stance towards you and me? How does he feel about you and me? And if we get the answer wrong to this question about how God feels about us, what his basic stance is toward us, if we get the wrong idea about this, or we don't appropriate the right idea in the way we live our lives, then we will be guaranteed to live in a way that's dishonoring to him, discouraging to us, and eventually defeating to us. And so a theme verse that we're going to be using for this seven-week series comes out of Psalm 139. Verses 17 and actually 18 as well, where it says this about God's thoughts and feelings toward us. How precious are your thoughts concerning me, O God? How vast is the sum of them? Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I'm awake, I'm still with you. So over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at this issue of how does God feel about us, which will in turn should inform how we relate to God, how we relate to other people, and how we think about ourselves. Before we begin the series, though, let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for um, this day and for your word. We pray that your, your spirit would bless our time together, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together, Lord, would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this through Christ. Amen. Uh, now, child psychologists will use a... Uh, often use a tool to try and find out how kids are doing, to try to help them with the struggles and issues that they have in their lives. Because usually a kid who's troubled, when they come to the counselor, uh, they, they don't have the maturity or the experience or the ability to articulate and identify what's going on in their lives, how are they feeling, how others feel about them, and so on and so forth. And so uh, a child psychologist will take this uh, tool called a matrix of faces. It's a chart, and on it has different faces with nonverbal expressions. Uh, a look of surprise, a look of anger, a look of fear, a look of happiness, and so on and so forth. And the child psychologist will lay this chart in front of the kid and say, okay, how are you feeling today? And the kid can look at that and, and point to a face. I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm scared, I'm angry, or whatever. And then the counselor can say, then let's dig in deeper. Now, how does your dad feel about you? How does your, how does your mom feel about you? How about the teacher? How about your friends, people who are important in your life? You know, there have been studies done about this tool and how these facial expressions, these nonverbals, can give us so much insight into what's going on in a person's life. And, and there are countless facial expressions, of course, and they're, they're universal. If you show a look of surprise or anger or fear or happiness, uh, it doesn't matter if you're in Italy or, or Germany or Mexico or Kenya or China or the U.S. or Italy or wherever, people generally know what's going on and what you're feeling. And so the child psychologist will take this chart, this matrix of faces, and lay it in front of the child and say, tell me about how you're feeling. Tell me about how the people important in your life feel about you. Now, we may not always be aware of it, and we may not always be able to articulate it, but I think as we go through life, often in our relationship with God, we have this matrix of faces. And after we do something uh, good or something bad or we're struggling with something or whatever, we will often pick up this matrix of faces in our mind and we'll point to it and say, you know, that's how God feels about me. He's angry at me now. 
Uh, he's just tolerating me. He's impatient with me. He's disgusted with me or whatever it might be. It's how does God feel about me? It's a hugely important question. And, and the answer that we, we give to that, that question uh, can and should have a, a major impact in our lives. You know, as we, as we look at the, the basic tenets and beliefs of the Christian faith, it's always helpful sometimes to, to contrast our faith with other world religions. Uh, for instance, in, the, in a religion called animism, animism is, is a basic structure in which believers feel that they are controlled by a spirit, usually an evil spirit, a spirit that doesn't have their best interest in mind. And, and this spirit uh, usually inhabits some sort of inanimate object, like a river or a rock or, or maybe a tree. And, and the spirit in animism is, is accusatory, is, is judgmental, it's very disgusted with the followers. And so the idea is that the spirit will make your child sick or make your crops dry up or make your, make your livestock die. And so if reasons to follow that this accusing spirit has to be appeased. And so you constantly have to work to appease the spirit, to make it happy. So when your crops die or your child gets sick, you, you take some chicken or you take some, uh, some fruit or some rice and you take it to, the, to this tree spirit and with a belief that this will please the spirit and your child will get well again. Now, animism is a, is, a, is a religion of bondage, a religion with a, a dark cloud hanging over its followers, a religion of performance. And all of life is spent then appeasing the tree or rock or, or whatever spirit. Now, we hear this and we say, well, that's, that's kind of silly. It's, that's nonsense. Who would be foolish enough to believe that? And yet the question for us today is, no matter what we say, no matter what we sing on Sunday morning, do we sometimes think that that's how God relates to us. That's how God feels about us. Do we live our lives as if under performance, trying our best to, to please God, to appease God, so that things in our life will go well? Now, it's very easy to fall into this trap, this way of thinking, even when we know Christ, even when we understand the Bible and have the Holy Spirit living within us, because, it's, because it dovetails with some things that are going on deep inside of us. It, for instance, it dovetails with our our, our sense of guilt and shame. We sin, we do something bad, we feel guilty, so we think, well, I've got to bring some rice to God. I've got to work it off, do something that I know he'll like so as to appease him, so things will go well with me. Now, beyond dovetailing with our guilt, it, it dovetails with our need to control and our sense of, of performance. And the idea that if I've offended God, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to try and work it off. And if I work really hard, then God will have to forgive me as if the God of the universe could be manipulated and forced into doing something for us. And so it's easy to fall into this trap of thinking of God like this. And so we're going to start our series today. And each week we'll be looking at a kind of a myth about how God feels and acts towards us and encounter it with a truth from Scripture about how God truly does feel about us and how he acts towards us. And so today we're going to start with a universal myth that God is accusatory and God is judgmental. Now, please understand the difference between judging and judgmental. Judging is simply discerning between what's good and bad, good and evil. Judgmental is deciding someone is bad or evil and then condemning that person, in essence, having the attitude or belief that this person is de de deserving of punishment 
and is of little value. So is God accusing or judgmental of us? Well, if he is, let's say that he is. If he is, then we need to be very, very afraid. Because he sees what we do, he knows what we think, and if, if he is accusatory and judgmental toward us, then he's going to be angry with us, he's going to be disgusted with us, and he's going to make us pay. And if he is, then it means that we're under performance. And well, that's bad news because we can never know if we've performed well enough. We can never know if we've done enough, and that can lead to discouragement and depression and, or just plain giving up in our relationship with God. The big problem with this is, other than it's not what God says about himself in his word and through his son Christ, the big problem is that if we are really accused by the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God, if that's his stance toward us, then we're in deep, serious trouble. And that's how other world religions besides Christianity portray their God, little g, or gods. They say, essentially, you've got to bring your God or gods some rice. You've you got to wear your temple garments. You've got to pray a certain way in a certain time of day. You've got to perform, got to work off your guilt, your shame, your sin. And if that's the case, then it stands to reason that their God or gods have an accusatory, judgmental stance toward their followers. Rabbi Zacharias, who is a, a well-known and brilliant Christian apologist and scholar from India, says that every religion has to be put to two tests. The first is the merit filter. Does this religion require me to have the merit or does God provide the merit? And if it requires me to have the merit, it is clearly a works-based religion. And the problem with that is, again, how much is enough? How good do I have to be? It puts tremendous pressure on you when you're part of a works-based religion. When you believe that God looks at you primarily from a place of accusation and judgmentalism. The second filter, after the merit filter, is the initiative filter. Does this religion say that God takes initiative first and then I respond? Or does it say that I'm the one who starts things? I'm the one who works off my guilt. I'm the one who brings rice to God. When you think of the religions of the world and you put them to the merit filter and the initiative filter, Christianity is the only one that that passes them both. That says merit comes from God and that God also is the initiator. Now here's the truth that Christ taught and that we believe. God is not accusatory. God is not judgmental. God is merciful and God is gracious. God God did not send his son to judge and condemn us. Rather, in fact, in John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in verse 17, it follows, it says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus did not come to judge and accuse us. He came to sacrifice himself to die for our sins. He came to be for us and with us, not against us. Now, this passage in John 3 then goes on to say that if we reject Christ, that we will be judged and we will stand condemned because we rejected his offer of grace and mercy. But God did not send Christ to earth to point his finger in my face or your face and say, Doug, I know what you've done. I know what you've thought. You're a bad person. Christ came 
to give his life on the cross and to die for you and me. And it was his choice to do for me what I could not do for myself. It stands toward us as mercy and grace. Now let's define what mercy and grace are. Mercy in the New Testament, as defined, begins with an emotion. It says in the scripture that God's heart, in his heart, wells up compassion. It starts with God seeing us in in a miserable, helpless state. And he reaches out to us and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He saves us, delivers us, he spares us. And mercy, if we're honest at all with ourselves, is, is needed by everybody, isn't it? Because mercy is given to people who are imperfect, who are flawed, who are sinful, and who are powerless to fix it and save themselves. Those are the people that God offers mercy to. And the mercy of God cannot come to anyone apart from faith in his son, Jesus Christ. God found a way on the cross to be just and to be the justifier. Romans 9, 16 says, For it does not depend upon one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. So what that means is my salvation, your salvation, does not depend upon us willing it, wanting it really badly. And it doesn't depend upon us running or performing, running down a certain path, trying to please God or appease him. Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive in Christ Jesus. Now, God offers his mercy, and this doesn't mean that he takes our lives and and that he fixes things. It means that he takes our old, dead, sinful life, and he replaces it. He starts over. In its place, he gives us new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 promises. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That's mercy in that God doesn't leave us dead in our sin, but he makes us alive in Christ. Now let's define grace. This is something most of us have heard dozens of times, but it's worth hearing again because it is, as the Apostle Paul says, God's indescribable grace. Grace is receiving something that we don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving something that we do deserve. Grace is receiving something that we don't deserve. An acronym that I like to use for grace is God's resources at Christ's expense. Theologically speaking, grace is unmerited, undeserved favor from God through Jesus Christ. Now listen to me. Grace is unmerited and it's undeserved. And yet God offers it freely to all who believe in his son, Jesus Christ, to confess that he is Lord, who believe that he died for his sins and that he rose again. It's unmerited. It's grace. And what that means for us today is that no matter no thought, no addiction, no habit, no action, no sin cannot be forgiven. You know, maybe this morning you find yourself in a situation where you're having a hard time really letting that sink into your heart. Maybe you've done something in your past, something awful, that you just can't believe that God would forgive you. Maybe you're struggling with something today that you'd be totally ashamed of if it was to be made public. And maybe you, just maybe you think that God stands toward you is one of accusation and judgmentalism, not one of mercy and of grace. Now, while our, sins does have con- our sin does have consequences, And while we have to give an account of God for our lives, 
as far as our salvation, as far as our standing before God through Christ, God looks at you with a face of mercy and a face of grace. Now, this idea of grace is not just for the future when we stand before the Lord. It's also for today. And what that means is that when we find ourselves in a situation or circumstance which is overwhelming, which seems to be just too much for us to to bear, God gives us his grace to overcome. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God declares to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What this means is that when we're weak, when we're discouraged or tempted, broken, struggling, God gives us his grace. He pours out his power into our lives. He gives us what we need to persevere to come through to, and, and, and to honor him in the midst of tough times. And just like the grace we receive in salvation, the grace we receive in tough and challenging times is a gift. It's grace. Many of you are familiar with the powerful story of uh, Les Miserables. In Les Miserables, there's the main character, Jean Valjean, and I'm sure you'll remember the story. Jean Valjean is, is convicted of stealing, and he's sentenced to 19 years of, of hard labor in prison. And during those 19 years, uh, he becomes a hardened, bitter man. Uh, after he's released, he He's required to wear on his coat for the rest of his life this yellow ticket called a ticket of leave. And basically, it's like a scarlet A. When people see his yellow ticket on his jacket, they know that he's a convict, that he's not to be trusted, that he's not to be helped, he's not to be hired. And so he, he lives under this cloud, this permanent mark. And despite the fact that he's paid his dues, he spent 19 years of hard labor in prison, there's nowhere for him to go. And then one night he finds refuge in the, in the house of a bishop of the church. And after he's been fed this wonderful meal, uh, he wakes in the middle of the night uh, and he's, he hasn't changed yet. He, he wakes in the middle of the night and he, he goes into the bishop's, uh, uh, into, the, into the dining room and he steals the silverware. He puts it in a bag and he just takes off. The next day a policeman sees him on the road and is suspicious of what's going on and he, he searches him and he's caught red-handed with a silverware. He's brought back to the bishop's house for identification before he is sent off to prison for the rest of his life. But then something very shocking happens. The bishop says to the policeman, he didn't steal that silverware. I I gave it to him. And and on top of that, oh, yes, I also gave him these uh, candlesticks. Here, take these as well. You forgot them. And so we see Jean Valjean standing there with a sack of silverware that he's stolen. And the bishop gives him a sack of candlesticks. In the story, the bishop gave him mercy by not punishing him for stealing the silverware. And the bishop showed him grace by further handing him the candlesticks. And we're like Jean Valjean. We need mercy and and we need grace. And it's God's kindness that gives us both. And the question comes to us, do I understand that I need God's grace and mercy? That I, like Jean Valjean, stand before someone, God, who has treated me kindly, way better than I deserve. And I stand there with my hand in the cookie jar, caught red-handed in my sin and in my guilt. You and I need grace and we need mercy. We need forgiveness. And here is the, the good news regarding God's stance toward us. God, in his compassion, withholds a judgment that is due to us. That's mercy. And God, in his compassion, gives to us the spiritual resources that are not due to us. That's grace. He doesn't punish us for taking the silverware. And on top of that, he gives us the candlesticks. 
I'm going to end by reading a passage from Psalm 103, which was read by Dan earlier. As I do so, I want you to listen deeply to the words as David, the man who wrote them, was a man who really understood that he needed grace and mercy. And in these verses, he describes who God is and God's stance in attitude and thoughts and feelings toward us. This is who God is. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. As for mortals, their days are like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. How does God feel about you this morning? How does he feel about me? When you hold up the matrix of faces and and you point to it, I, I surely hope and I believe that when we look at God's face, his attitude and stance toward us is one of grace, one of mercy, one of love. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we thank you uh, for your word and for your son, Jesus Christ, that really reveals to us who you are. And Lord, uh, despite the fact that you are holy and just and perfect in every way. You're all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere present. Even though you know everything about us, Lord. Lord, we, we thank you that through what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, that we can be declared righteous before you. Not because of our own merit, but because you provide the merit. Not because we started it or, or, or work at it, but because you started it. And you have done it. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus. As we come to the table in just a minute, we are reminded and we celebrate. And we are humbled by the fact that Jesus Christ gave his life for us. That when we think of who you are, Lord, we, when we have questions about how you feel, we look at Jesus Christ. We look at his life. And we see grace. And we see mercy. We thank you, Lord. Help us not only to hear, but help us to apply and believe and act and let it change our lives. The fact that you are a God who is not accusatory or judgmental, but you are a God who offers grace and mercy to all who believe. Amen.